Good morning, folks. My name's Phil. Um, I'm the assistant pastor at Magdalen Road, and I'm going to be bringing God's word to us from this passage. So let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we are so like the disciples and James and John in this passage, and we so need your help to see clearly who Jesus is, to understand what this means for, for us. Please, Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Greatness is attractive. Who doesn't like the idea of other people respecting you, admiring you, taking your opinions seriously and doing what you want? Very often the obvious path to such greatness seems, in the world's eyes, to be putting yourself first. Greatness is won through publicizing your achievements, through doing it as widely as possible and by covering up your failings. Greatness is won by persistently talking over weaker, less confident voices until they're cowed into silence. Greatness is won by reminding others of all the times you got it right and they got it wrong. Greatness is won by insisting on having it your way. Now, I'm sure we can all think of certain world leaders who see greatness in this way, but let's not pretend that this pattern of behavior is only out there, only in high level politics. These patterns of behavior can just as easily come out in a marital argument about each other's annoying habits or in a post-match rant in the changing room after your sports team has lost yet again or in the run-up to annual appraisals and interviews for a promotion at work. To seek greatness by putting yourself first, I think it's fair to say is the normal way of this world. And that's why Jesus's words and his behavior in Mark's gospel and, and here in, in chapter 10, verses 32 to 52, they ought to shock us. Ever since Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, as God's anointed forever king back in chapter eight, Jesus has been moving steadily southwards through Palestine. And now in verses 31 to 32, Mark and Jesus make clear that his destination is Jerusalem. And his followers are astonished and afraid. Now, what's so astonishing about Jesus going to Jerusalem, we might wonder? It is Jesus's own conviction that he will be killed there. And it is his boldness in leading the way in spite of the danger. Here in verses 33 to 34, Jesus tells his followers for the third time and in the most detail what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He will be rejected by the religious leaders, handed over to the Roman governor and the soldiers who occupy Palestine. And he will be shamefully tortured and killed by them before rising three days later. 
this whole section of Mark, you might have noticed from the middle of chapter eight to the end of chapter 10 is structured around these three prophetic declarations by Jesus about his death and resurrection. They are crucial to understanding Jesus's purpose in coming into the world. And they are also crucial in understanding what it means to follow Jesus as saviour. But why do we need to hear it three times? Well, this is my first point. We need to hear it three times because it ought to shock us as much as it did Jesus's first disciples. It ought to shock us. Now, to most of us, the idea of Jesus dying on the cross is the most basic idea in Christianity. If anything, it's over familiar. It's tame, sadly. But I think Jesus's first Jewish disciples probably saw much more clearly the significance of Jesus's claims and his miracles because they knew the Old Testament better. And in some ways, they saw his greatness more clearly. And so they were more shocked when Jesus started talking about his death. They could not see how suffering and death were compatible with being God's great and glorious Messiah. The Messiah was meant to be God's chosen king, right? The one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron and dash his enemies in pieces like pottery. The one who would restore glory and power to Israel so that the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the true God. And hadn't God said to Peter, James and John up on the mountain of transfiguration that Jesus was indeed his son, which is both a royal and a divine title? Hadn't Jesus demonstrated this godlike power over sickness, death, the forces of nature and the devil through his miracles? Hadn't he demonstrated his prophet-like and even divine authority? in his teaching, and in the way he forgave people their sins. Jesus even strengthens the case for his greatness by calling himself the Son of Man, right here in verse 33. It's a title he's used several times before, and the way he uses it suggests that he is the one like a Son of Man, who the prophet Daniel foresaw. In Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 to 14 in the Old Testament, this one like a son of man receives from God all authority, glory and sovereign power over all the earth. How shocked would we have been if Donald Trump had voluntarily stood down before the recent US election because he thought it was for the good of his country. Pretty shocked, right? Well, we should be many times more shocked by Jesus's willingness to be so humiliated. Unlike mere earthly leaders, his credentials have proved that he is in every way worthy of the highest position of authority. So how can the rightful king of all creation allow himself to be so shamefully rejected and killed? 
when he has such power and authority, when he deserves such glory. Jesus needed to make the point about his death three times, maybe more, because it is so hard for human beings to understand, to see how authority and greatness could possibly be compatible with suffering and shame. The disciples James and John illustrate this difficulty so well when they come to see, come to Jesus with their brazen request in verse 35. They have utterly failed to heed the fact that Jesus is going to his death in Jerusalem. They seem to think he's going to his coronation and they want the best seats at the banquet and in the throne room. And while Jesus is humiliating himself, they want to exalt themselves. It's as if they've learned nothing in the last two chapters. And the other 10 disciples seem no better. In verse 41, they're probably just resentful because James and John tried to put themselves first. Jesus really has to spell it out to them, doesn't he? In verses 42 to 45. Look back at those verses with me again. He has to be emphatic that he did not come to be served. He did not come to lord it over others or to exalt himself. He will be exalted by his father at his resurrection and in his second coming. But for now, he has come to serve. And serve even to the point of laying down his life. In saying he will give his life as a ransom, Jesus is saying that his death will pay the price for other people's freedom, buying them out of slavery and a death sentence. This is exactly what the servant of the Lord does in Isaiah chapters 49 to 53. And by emphasizing Jesus's servanthood and death in, in, in our passage, Jesus is drawing on that imagery from Isaiah. As Jesus speaks, we should be thinking of Isaiah's suffering servant of the Lord. The one who will bring God's salvation and righteousness to Israel and to the world by suffering and dying in our place. This is exactly what the servant of the Lord does in Isaiah 53. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord lays on him the sins of us all. In one simple verse, here in verse 45, Jesus connects all of the glory and authority of the Son of Man with the long-awaited, um, with, with all the suffering and indignity of Isaiah's suffering servants. The Son of Man and the servant of the Lord are the same person, Jesus, and he must suffer before he begins his glorious reign as king. We're going to move on to the implications of Jesus's suffering service in just a minute. But before we can talk about us serving, 
We need to feel just how shocking and incredible it is that Jesus, the Son of Man, has served us even to death. This isn't something that we can see clearly by ourselves. Mark highlights that for us in verses 46 to 52. In verse 51, Jesus asks the blind man, Bartimaeus, the same question that he asks James and John in verse 36. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? And we are meant to see a parallel between the disciples and the blind man. But where the disciples ask a totally inappropriate question, the blind man makes better requests. He simply cries for mercy and asks for sight. Mark uses the physical reality of Bartimaeus's healing to illustrate a physical, uh, sorry, a spiritual point. So just like James and John, we need our eyes opened, spiritually speaking, to understand why Jesus had to die. And we need our eyes opened to understand the significance of his death for us. We are spiritually blind. And this is another theme Mark picks up from the prophet Isaiah. We need Jesus to open our eyes. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's something I would urge you to pray for. Plead with God to help you see that Jesus died for you. That it was your sins he suffered for. And that there is no forgiveness apart from Jesus. Either you and I must face the punishment for our sins. When we stand before God in judgment. Or Jesus takes it for us. There is no other way. Ask God to open your eyes. To see who Jesus is. To see your need of him clearly. Even if we've been following Jesus for years though. We still need our eyes opened more and more. I know I am so slow to understand how massive a thing it is for the king of this universe to make himself the lowest servant and suffer such a horrific death in my place. And because of this, I am so slow and unwilling to follow in his footsteps, too. I don't particularly want to serve others because I am not sufficiently amazed that Jesus has served me. I'm not sufficiently thankful for it either. So can I suggest if you are a Christian, why not spend the next couple of weeks reading back through Mark chapters 1 to 10, a little bit each day, and ask Jesus to show you more clearly his authority, his glory and his power. Ask him to help you feel the weight of it. So that you will be more amazed and thankful at his service. Jesus' self-sacrifice should shock us and amaze us. 
We need our eyes opened more and more to see the implications of his death. And then, as our eyes are opened, we should willingly follow Jesus down the road of suffering, like Bartimaeus at the end of verse 52. And this is my second point. We are called to follow Jesus down the road of sacrificial service. Come back with me to verses 42 to 45. In Jesus's kingdom, all worldly ideas of greatness are turned on their head. The king gives himself to suffer and to serve. And so his subjects are to do the same. Not to earn anything from him, but because we are no better than him. So what he does, we should do. You see how Mark increases the stakes in each verse from verse 43 to 45? Anyone who wants to be great must serve. Anyone who wants to be first must be a slave with no regard for self, utterly devoted to the needs of others. Why? Because the one who is first of all, the son of man, gave his life entirely to service and to death. That is our model for life in Jesus's kingdom. That is the kind of life that King Jesus thinks is great. That is the kind of life that he will praise when he returns to judge the world. A life of service to others for his name's sake. It's easy to think that this kind of service means grand and sweeping gestures like a company CEO with a six-figure salary spend, uh, spending their evenings working in a homeless shelter. Or maybe stepping down to become a low-paid church pastor. Those would be great things to do in Jesus' service. There's no denying it. But most of the time, this servant mentality plays out in the little decisions and acts of everyday life. And although Jesus is talking initially about how his disciples relate to each other, this, isn't, this doesn't just apply to our relationships within the church. Jesus talks about being a servant of all. And why would we want to be less Christ-like towards non-Christians than we are towards our brothers and sisters? There's no biblical warrant for that. So here are some examples of what Christ-like service might look like in the everyday stuff. And these aren't in any way meant to be exhaustive. They're just something to get you thinking and praying. And it's worth saying that they're primarily drawn from my own self-reflection and where I struggle to serve. So the application might look quite different for you. So firstly, in a team, are you the last person to volunteer to pick up extra work or responsibility? It probably isn't wise if you're always the first and you end up swamped. But if you're always the last person to volunteer, could it be that you think 
you are more important than others, or that your priorities and your free time matter more than theirs? Do you need Jesus's sacrificial example to change your attitude? Or what about in conversation, not least with other Christians? Are you prone to dominating the conversation by talking about your own struggles? Or perhaps by constantly bringing back every point in the conversation to you and your own experiences? If so, perhaps you could let Jesus' example change your focus. Maybe you could spend more time asking others about their struggles and experiences. Perhaps you could serve them by listening more and learning their needs and how you can pray for them. A bit more topically, I heard of a friend's church which started meeting in person again in September and October, where there was a couple who insisted on singing aloud to the hymns, though the government guidelines called us not to sing or raise our voices. And this caused a lot of upset in the church with members with more tender consciences, those who are more concerned to obey the authorities set over us and to minimize the risk of infection to others. Now, if, if your attitude to the coronavirus restrictions has been more like the couple who sang, perhaps you could consider the Apostle Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 8 to 9. Paul lived out Jesus's example in, of, of self-sacrifice by being all things to all people and by striving not to put a stumbling block in the way of others in their faith. Not least brothers and sisters with weaker consciences. Finally, to my brothers in Christ, I want to speak particularly to the present and future husbands and elders among us. Modern culture finds the idea of male headship deeply disturbing because it's seen as oppressive and demeaning to women. And so often in, in secular history and sadly in church history, it has been used to oppress and demean women. But the Bible calls men to positions of leadership and responsibility in marriage and in the church. And it's crucial that we see the implications of these verses in Mark 10 for us. If Jesus, as the son of man in the position of highest authority, leadership, responsibility in the universe, did not use his position to lord it over others, to insist on his own way and to serve his own needs, then neither can we. Male headship in marriage and the church must follow the self-sacrificial pattern of our ultimate head. And the more we can live that out, the more the name of Jesus will be honored. The more we can live it out, perhaps the more the world and maybe our own wives might just begin to see and be reassured that headship in Jesus's kingdom is not demeaning or oppressive. 
That's because it's not about exalting self. It is about exalting others. I know I really need help to keep reflecting on this, to keep praying about this, to keep talking to Megan about this and where I can better serve her. For example, I find it so easy to make sure I get the break I want on my day off and go off and do my own thing, but find it much harder to prioritize giving Megan a break. I find it so easy to want my preferences to be recognized in every little decision around the house, even in stupid things like the particular shade of off-white that we paint the dining room in. I constantly need Jesus to help me serve my wife, not myself. So brothers, can I urge you to pray for the same help? To close, let me say again, like Bartimaeus, the blind man, we all need Jesus to open our eyes so that we can see the astonishing shock of his self-sacrifice. And so that we can follow him down the road of sacrificial service, even where it means suffering. This week, pray, Lord, help me to see how shocking and amazing it is that you sacrificed yourself. But why not also pray each day? Lord, show me where I can serve others better. And pray that persistently. Because that is a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. And sooner or later, he will bring something across your path. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we are sorry that our hearts are so hard and that we are so taken up with worldly ideals of greatness and that we so struggle to follow in your footsteps or even to understand how amazing it is that you have served us. Lord Jesus, we want to acknowledge that you, as the Son of Man, are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. All authority and power and glory is rightfully yours. And yet you came down to die for us. We praise you. And we pray, please, Lord, help us to follow in your footsteps. Show us how we can better serve others. For the sake of your name. Amen.